0: everybody, good to see you all today. Let me just invite you to bring your conversations to a close. If you don't know me, as um, Nathaniel mentioned, my name's Richard and I'm one of the pastors here. Great to see you. Welcome if you're here for the first time. Um, if you are part of the church, you'll probably know now that we're working through a four-week series in the book of Titus in the New Testament. The book of Titus is um, essentially a letter of instruction written by the Apostle Paul who wrote so much of the New Testament and uh, he's writing it as an older man to a young church pastor called Titus, who lives on the island of Crete. And Titus is leading um, a community of small house churches, and he's working really hard to help these gospel communities to, es- to establish in, in a pretty hostile place. Crete was a really hostile place, so I'll talk about that more in, in a moment. And so these rules are—sorry, this letter— essentially contains the rules of the house, the instructions to Titus for how to establish and to pastor a healthy gospel community. So it's, it's full of instruction, and it's full of instruction for all of us here today as we steward this gospel community together at Gateway that God has placed us in in this season of our life. So I hope there's lots of stuff for you to apply personally today. And What I find helpful uh, from today's passage is the way that Paul writes this letter is kind of in a way that he, he tries to draw a link between the way that healthy households operate and therefore how healthy churches should operate. Essentially, he's saying, as in the home... So in the church, as you lead and steward and participate in your household and you manage yourself and you raise and disciple and protect those who live in your home, so too those same principles apply in the church. And that makes sense because the church is also a family. Galatians 6.10 calls us the family of God. We often use that language here. Family feel is very important to what it means to be part of Gateway, hence this series is called Family Values. I um, I thought I might start today by telling you something about my own upbringing and uh, some of my my own early life experiences. I, I don't really often talk about this stuff. It feels like a very different life, but actually... I'm praying and hoping that this might actually help to make a point about the function and the importance of family life and its effect on us, both when it aligns well with the gospel and also when it doesn't, frankly. And I want you, as I'm talking, just to be thinking about this connection between family values in the house, in the home, and the importance of establishing those same family values here in the church. My... um my early years were uh, a challenge, I think, uh, to say the least. There he is. Oh, Look at that. Yeah, exactly, yeah, thanks. That's Rich Stamp, age nine. Um, I tell you what, preaching is vulnerable at the best of times. Preaching <laughs> with a picture of yourself as a nine-year-old boy behind you, man, it's a whole different ball game. Um, I think he's gonna turn out all right, by the way. Um, I was born to a Jewish father who had, somewhere along the lines, given up uh, on the Jewish faith completely and become a Buddhist, of all things. And a mother who had been a Jehovah's Witness up until that point, uh, but had recently been kicked out of the Jehovah's Witnesses for marrying a Jewish Buddhist. Um, It was pretty spiritually confused, to say the least. And um, consequently, they didn't stay together long. They got divorced, and that was pretty much the last I ever saw of my birth father until much later on in my adult years. And uh, shortly afterwards, my mother then remarried an ardent atheist. And uh, that obviously had a significant effect on our household too. And so none of the the values or the practices of our home were aligned with the gospel. And actually, that home was an incredibly unhealthy place to be for all sorts of reasons. It was was really hallmarked by domestic violence. And uh, predictably, that marriage broke down too after a while. And that plunged my family, which comprised of me, my mother, sister and brother, into all sorts of chaos. We were financially under pressure for years. My mother had to work full time uh, to support us in South Africa. There's no benefit system there, which had implications for how uh, me and my siblings kind of had to fend for ourselves growing up. And um, I sometimes say, this is my party piece, that the house that Vix and I now live in with our kids is something like the 65th house I've lived in in my life. I'm only 27 years old as well, by the way. <laughs> Bear in mind, when I say that, 65 houses. I've, only, I've lived in two in the last 15 years. I went to six schools in 12 years. I'd emigrated seven times and lived on three continents by the time I was 20. So, family life was a hot mess. It really was. And consequently, so was I. Uh, I got up to all sorts of trouble that led me into all sorts of trouble. Now. By the grace of God, I've had many years to work through all the kind of the issues this has caused, and uh, I stand here before you today a perfectly balanced, emotional human being, as I'm sure you'd agree. And I'm really not telling you the story to uh, to try and get any sympathy or anything. God's you know worked beautifully through all of that stuff. Life is just messy sometimes, and I have really happy memories of my childhood as well. But it it really wasn't ideal. That's my point. It was disorganised and chaotic, and it was emotionally very fraught and we were constantly under threat, and we were constantly on the move, and it certainly wasn't what you might consider stable and secure. Thank you for leaving that picture up the entire time, by the way. Every time I get a glimpse of it, I'm like... (laughs) Now, I'm telling you this stuff because there there are a few hallmarks of my story that we can learn from in the church, I think. Obviously, a key thing was that there was no healthy, reliable dad around, which I know is also true for some of your own families even now. And I have nothing but great respect for single-parent families as the product of one myself. I know what that's like. But all sorts of research studies show the impact of that as well. Fathers in the home are put there by God to reflect something of the father heart of God himself. That's not to say that God can't reveal himself to, uh, or reveal his father heart to you in the absence of of a healthy household dad I stand here myself as evidence of that today but that's also why we put so much effort into teaching about healthy family values and praying for marriages and parenting and children in the church and for singles to be well knitted into the community and to trying to create a healthy welcoming warm family environment here in the church Secondly, we, we had no gospel in our home, so we, we didn't have a, a solid framework for good living. My, my mother did her best, I suppose, but as you can tell from my story, without a, a gospel framework for life, we were just kind of making it up as we went along. And significantly, where there is no gospel framework in the home and family life is chaotic for one reason or another, then we're open to danger. All, all sorts of other frameworks creep in. All sorts of other truths become believable. All sorts of other authority figures become prevalent. That's actually one of the reasons that we say that the hope for families of any sort, the hope for single-parent families, the hope for singles, the hope for widows and widowers, the hope for the refugee and the immigrants, and the hope for marriages, and the hope for parenting, and the hope for children, is found in the church. Because as we coalesce together and have the right people in the right roles Drawn together by the gospel, we actually find the truest expression of family and belonging right here. I look out at you today, and I get the privilege of doing this every Sunday, and I see all sorts of brothers and sisters, and fathers and mothers, and sons and daughters that God has given me. And, and look around. So should you as well. This is the family to which God has drawn you. That's why in another of his letters, Paul says, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. Think on that. Every family, every person originates and finds their primary connection in God. It's pretty awesome stuff. The the reality is that our primary source, if you're a human being, of relational connection is to him, and from there, every other relational connection flows. So today we're going to, try and unpack some of that stuff um, so that we get our family values here in the church straight and aligned with God. We'll um, read the passage in a moment. If you haven't got a Bible, if you've got a Bible, maybe the stewards can just fling a few around. I think there's some kicking around. It'll just be helpful for you because I'm going to work passage uh, line by line through through this passage. But um, it might just be helpful just to know a little bit about the island of Crete where Titus is. Crete, much like the rest of the ancient world was, was pretty no, well known for its immorality. It was actually a place where most of the men on the island had previously been mercenary soldiers to the highest bidder. Interestingly, one of the Greek words for being a liar is kritizo which is to be a Cretan. So it was a really messy place to start with, and so you've got these small emerging gospel communities shooting up in houses all over the island as the gospel kind of sweeps through, but you've also got lots of nonsense coming in from the prevailing culture, and it's pressing in on the church, and in some cases, it's actually infiltrated. It's in the church as well. And so Paul writes to Titus, and he says, okay, you need to get the house in order, and here's three chapters on how to do that. Chapter one, start by establishing healthy elders like you, Titus, to keep the whole thing together. And two, there are some voices that you need to consider as a church to make sure that these unhelpful voices are kind of silenced out, and the gospel is the loudest voice heard in the church. So we're going to be looking at those two things together today. So the words are coming from the screen, but it's in page 1198, if you uh, want to follow along in the church Bibles. So Titus 1, verse 5, it starts with it says, "...appointing elders who love what is good." Verse 5, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children behave and uh, sorry, believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable one who loves what is good and who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. He's talking about a group of Jews there. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore... Rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything Good. Okay. So, Paul is basically saying, right at the start, I left you in Crete, Titus, to put things in order in the churches. And the way that you do that is firstly by appointing godly elders in every town in the churches, and to secondly, to ensure that the church is free and pure. It's free of meaningless, deceptive talk and teaching that might derail people's faith. Basically, in the household of God, appoint fathers, godly, fatherly elders, who will help to kind of coordinate the way the the family of the church operates and work together as a community to keep the church pure and on mission. So that's what we're going to look at today. Now, I obviously feel slightly self-conscious teaching this passage, and we believe in preaching through an entire book, but um, partly what I'm saying here is when you look at myself or Nathaniel or Gordon... This is what you should see, frankly. But much more importantly, I want to help us all to see the, the vital importance of what it means to have clear pastoral oversight in the church and how important it is that as elders we teach the Word of God as clearly and as accurately as we possibly can because that is, according to this passage, the most pastoral thing that we can do to care for you. And that's important because I know it's not easy to sit week after week and hear a half-hour monologue, uh, I know that. But I also wanna give you a bigger vision for being here on a Sunday and for sitting under God's word because it's like taking your weekly medicine or strapping on your weekly armor or taking up your weekly weaponry for the fight and dosing you again with medicine, with faith, to trust God for all that he's doing in your life. And so I wanna give you a bigger vision for why we gather here on Sundays, and what it should look like. So, what should an elder be? Verse 6, blameless, no pressure there. Of course, um, nobody is perfect, and we shouldn't expect that of any leader either. But the seriousness of the gospel means that when it's being taught by anyone, you must be able to match up the truth of the words that are being spoken with the way that person actually lives their life. That's a pretty obvious thing to say, I know. That's what gets public figures into trouble all the time. We we saw this recently with Boris Johnson. The accusation is that he told us all to stay at home and avoid social contact, but it looks like he didn't take his own advice. Now, if you think about it, there's much bigger things going on in the world. He didn't start a genocide or embezzle loads of public money, but actually a hugely important part about being a public figure is that you should be able to trust what they say And know that they really believe it as well. So, if Boris is found to have lied about a a smallish thing, what else might he lie about? I don't mean to demean Boris Johnson at all, by the way. There are so many examples of this, that's just the one that came to mind. But it makes the point in this passage if a person is called to be an elder, teaching the truth of the gospel, then everything they say and do should line up with the truth of the gospel. It's the same if you're a parent, if you break trust with your kids, if you if you're a hypocrite if you tell them to do stuff that you yourself don't do then they're not going to do what you tell them because why should they your word isn't reliable and they know that you don't believe it so in the church paul says establish these father figures into eldership and their lives should reflect the following gospel qualities now before i get into that i want to quote one of my kind of heroes the bible scholar d.a carson who says and i, and I love this that the qualifications for elders are the basic qualifications for all Christians. So when I work through this list, this list is for elders, but it's for all of us. Verse 6, faithful to his wife. Yep, of course. A man whose children aren't out of control. Yep, of course. Why? Verse 7, because as in the home, so in the church. So he shouldn't be overbearing Or quick-tempered. Don't get drunk, don't get into fights, don't defraud or rob. Of course. And of course, that's true for all of us, because the gospel's call on us is to something bigger and better than these things. Verse 8, rather, be hospitable. Open your house to people and love them into the gospel. That's what Georgie's just been talking about. Speak to my friend John Roberts over there. He's got some brilliant thoughts about this stuff. When was the, the last time you opened your house to others for the sake of building the church and loving people into the gospel by serving them? An elder should love what is good. He should be self-controlled, not a compulsive gambler or womanizer. Stay within the, the safety of the rails of the gospel's call on us. He should be upright. What's the opposite of upright? Well, it's crooked. <laughs> None of us want to be that. Verse 9, super important. He must hold firmly to the gospel as it has been taught, not swerving all over the place when the troubles and temptations of life come, but have both feet securely set right up to the knees in two barrels of quick-setting gospel concrete, solidly trusting God, unmoving. Why? So that he can encourage others and oppose those who oppose the gospel. That's the call on us all. I haven't um, obviously always been an elder, and I may not always be an elder, but all my Christian life I have seen the wisdom and lived in the benefits of having them in place to help to keep the family together. And for that reason, even as an elder myself, I'm 100% behind and submitted to my fellow elders. It's safe for me, and it's safe for you as well. So they are the first to hear when I'm facing struggles, and I do receive their counsel and wisdom, and I do sit under their preaching, and I have said to Vicks a number of times, if my life doesn't line up with all this stuff, go straight to the other elders and make them aware. I want to live like the gospel calls me to live because I so deeply believe in it. And I really want you to as well. That's what an elder should do. And so that's what in many ways we all should do. As we minister these family values to one another, do it one meal at a time at a time around your table one encouragement at a time, one correction at a time in someone's life, one gospel reminder at a time. And by the way, don't be a drunkard or a fighter or a womanizer because then your words won't be taken seriously. It's not really rocket science. I used to have a a family GP who would just tear down the hills on his bike on on all the hills, and, uh, and he wouldn't be wearing a helmet either. He'd just be flying down that hill And that really affected my ability to trust his judgment. He was a man who was uh, responsible for promoting health and he wasn't demonstrating it himself. And so I changed doctors. I started seeing someone else who I could trust. So too with the gospel. Elders, but all of us, need to live in a way that advertises with our lives the goodness of the gospel. It's pretty difficult to do that with a broken bloody nose from a bar fight. That's why elders, and all of us in the church are held to much higher account by the world than many other types of people. I'm sure you've all heard this kind of accusation, that thing you've just done, that's not very Christian. The world watches us, and it watches how we operate and act as we proclaim the kingdom of God. Our character and our witness, our character and our witness is a walking advert for the gospel. How we live is much more important than what we achieve. And so, As it pertains to elders, just like in the household, dad has responsibility. Mum and dad have responsibilities to live a certain way as they help their kids to live for the gospel. And in many ways, that's eldership as well. And in many ways, that's all of us. Now... I imagine if I had a person like that in my family when I was growing up, a steady, stable influence who lived right, who was kind and hospitable and corrected me when I was wrong and taught me over and over again how to live out the gospel, my childhood would have been very, very different. Things would have been very different for me. Or I imagine again if I'd grown up as part of a church where there were other godly mother and father figures around to encourage me and to help to steer me away from trouble and steer me towards God, life also would have looked very different for me. And in his sovereignty, God allowed my childhood to work out the way it did for his good purposes. But he really does not want chaos and disorder in our families, and he really does not want chaos and disorder in his family. Hence, appoint dads, elders, and this is how they should live, and this is how they should help others too as well. Now, I, of all people, fully appreciate brokenness in our lives and in our family situations. I still experience all of that stuff myself. Even now in my wider family, there is still deep brokenness. And so I never want to stand here and underplay the severity of your own family experience and what you're going through. These, these things are tough, and they can be lifelong painful. Which is all the more reason why the gospel calls you and I, into a relationship with Jesus and with one another where we can walk the stuff out together and find healing as we look to him and to encourage one another in our walk with him and let him do some deep work in our lives over a long period of time, over the long haul as we operate together in his family here at Gateway. We find our hope and our healing in God especially when life circumstances present as hopeless. If your family and your relationships are broken, there is hope in God. And we express that hope in God as we live it out with one another here in the church. So that's why we establish robust pastoral oversight in the church, just as we should establish strong pastoral oversight in the house, in the home. That way, Everyone stays safe, everyone knows their place, everyone finds healing, everyone runs in their lane, and everyone stays on mission. Here's the second thing for all of us. Just as we show love to the world and gather in those far from Christ, just as you might do in your own household, you need to drive away wolves and those who would cause you damage We did not have that framework in place in my home when I was growing up, and it was to our detriment because the wolves got in. Just as we should protect our own households and those within it, we should work together to protect the household of God right here as well. On a couple of occasions in the Gospels, Jesus talks about yeast. If you've ever baked, you'll know what that's about. If you've ever baked bread, you'll understand that a a tiny bit of yeast needs to be kneaded into a big lump of flour and water. And this tiny bit of yeast works its way throughout the entire loaf, and and it utterly transforms it. And the point that Jesus is making is that it just takes a little bit of one thing to affect a whole lot of another thing. And so in Matthew 16, he says to his disciples, he gathers them together, and he says, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. Pharisees taught... um, a kind of gospel that was at odds with what Jesus was teaching. And so he's saying, be careful. A little bit of that yeasty Pharisee wisdom will work its way through your whole life and the whole church to your detriment. Drive it out. And that's why we need to be super careful in our lives, and especially in the church, that yeasty teaching doesn't infiltrate us. And that's a challenge, as we've just explored as we work through the air that we breathe, that teaching series, in a world that prizes tolerance of all sorts of worldviews and opinions, because this is what Jesus warns us. He says, there's going to be yeasty teaching out there. Protect yourself. And so Titus, drive it out. Don't let it take a hold. Don't let it infiltrate the loaf. Don't let it take control of what's going on in the church. And so he says, verse 10, The circumcision group, basically those who, like the Pharisees, were teaching that you had to be circumcised to be a true Christian, they're rebellious and they're full of deception. That's just not true. And in verse 11, don't tolerate that. Don't kind of tilt your head to one side and smile and say, well, that's an opinion. He says, they must be silenced because they are teaching in the church What ought not to be taught. If you tolerate it in the church, it's like yeast in the loaf. The whole thing will end up getting affected. So he goes on don't pay attention to these Jewish myths or to the commands of mere men who reject the truth. They are impure and they're corrupted. They claim to know God, but their actions deny him. And if that sort of voice emerges in the family of God, It is your communal responsibility to not tolerate that and to silence those voices. Together, Gateway, we build this family for God. Together, we must protect this family for God. That's a communal responsibility that needs careful coordination. It needs us all to run in our own lane using the gifts that God has given us to do so. That's basically the purpose of this letter. That's how you stay safe and you keep the truth of the gospel as your guide, keeping before you the gospel as the loudest voice, drowning out all the other yeasty voices because the gospel of Jesus Christ, as it says in Romans 1.16, is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to all who believe. Nothing else. The gospel therefore does not need to be jazzed up or changed for the times or made more funny or more serious. It's fine as it is, thanks very much. And it's the only message that brings salvation to humans. Nothing else. If you don't believe the simple gospel that Jesus Christ, the Lord of all things, loves you and died for you and has made you right with God and is the only way to be saved, then you cannot be saved. You cannot be right with God without the gospel. That's why, Gateway, we are called to guard the gospel, to guard this prize, to guard the purity and the simplicity and the accessibility of its message, and to not be tempted into soft-soaping it, but just to confidently assert it. That's why Paul is so hardcore about how to deal with these false teachers. That's actually one of the reasons that the Bible outlines the concept of church discipline. Please, Lord, help us to uh, never have to do this. But the Bible teaches that there are meant to be mechanisms in the church so that if someone behaves in a way that is consistently, unrepentantly, antagonistic to the gospel, then as a church community, we're supposed to put them out of the church. It's, It's tragic when it happens, but it's like taking yeast out of the loaf. Now, This is really important, and Paul makes this clear in this passage. The purpose of doing such a thing isn't meant to be punitive, it's not a a punishment. The gospel doesn't crush a person. Silencing an unhelpful voice in the church is not meant to crush someone. Paul says in verse 13 rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. When Vix and I used to put our kids in time out at home when they were much younger, on the naughty step, Hannah reminded me on the way in today. It wasn't the naughty step dad, you never wanted to call us naughty, it was timeout. Anyway, when we put them in timeout, the challenge for us was to ensure that we weren't trying to punish them. Punishment just crushes a person. The purpose of the naughty step was to temporarily remove them from the privilege. Of participating in the family to give them sufficient time to rethink it and get their behavior straight so that they could be reintroduced into the privilege of participating in the family. And that's what church discipline is supposed to be. And that's what Paul is saying rebuke them, silence them, don't tolerate them so that they become sound in the faith. Put them on the naughty step, if you like, for a while. Give them a chance to reflect on and receive the gospel properly. This really should help and direct us as we interact with the world that wants to silence out the gospel. And this also is the gospel as it pertains to us. Our God has not crushed us and silenced us or cast us aside forever and punished us with our own misdeeds. Sure, we've been sharply rebuked and we have to now live with the consequences of sin, but the door back has always been open. That's the point of the gospel. The, the temple curtain that was supernaturally torn at the point of Jesus' death was meant to symbolically declare to you and I and to all people that the way back to God has been opened up for us all again. Jesus' death on the cross has made it so. It's like the story of the, the prodigal son. That story is um, it's representative of us all, if you know the story. It's kind of a, it's like a, a small narrative that represents the history of humanity with God. Jesus said, if you want to know what God is like, let me tell you a story. There was was once a son who had it all. He had all the comfort and the peace of life in a family. He was cared for and he was provided for by his father. But He wanted to go his own way, so he rejected all of that, and he rejected his father, and he took his inheritance early, and he he went off and he spent, he wasted, that's what prodigal means, he wasted all his father's resources on wild, godless living, and he ended up with the pigs. That's us. We in that story were with the pigs, having rejected the father and wasted all that he offered and gave us. This is how that story ends. Luke 15, verse 17, when he, the son, came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and he is found. That story has been the central paradigm in my life for understanding the goodness and the forgiveness and the mercy of God. I had no earthly paradigm for fatherhood. I'm still kind of making it up as I go. I didn't have a model. God was the father who was absent or angry to me until as a 24-year-old man, I read the story. Do you know the two most important words for me in this story? Ran quick. This is why the family of God is so important. This is why the gospel is so important. This is why we need to protect it. It tells of a father who, no matter how far you've distanced yourself from him, no, no matter how low you've sunk, there's There's nowhere lower to go than working with the pigs if you're a Jewish boy like the one in the story. It tells of a father who, in spite of all that you've done and all that you are, is quick to forgive you. And not only to forgive you, he's not trying to crush you. He runs to you. That's what Jesus did. That's what the cross is. That's God running to you. When God himself sent his only son from heaven to die for you and me on a rugged Roman cross, that's him running towards you quickly to embrace you and to clothe you and to celebrate new life with you. That is the gospel. It's powerful and it's effective. It saves. It's the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. It saves all types of people from all sorts of backgrounds who've done all sorts of things without exception, if you believe it, and it draws us together into his family. There are nations and biographies and ethnic types and all sorts of different people gathered here in this room, coalescing around the central truth that God the Father quickly ran to you called you out, gathered you into his family, sent his son to die for you to make it all possible. It's the gospel. We protect the gospel. It saved a confused wayward South African boy who was with the pigs. It saved me. It can save you. It can save you if you've not yet given your life to Jesus. It can save you afresh if you know God and you've grown cold. It can save you in the moments of your pain. It can save you in the moment of your distance from God. He's kind. He sees you from way off. He runs to you quickly. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you that, first and foremost, that's how you describe yourself in scripture. You're the Father. Thank you that we can come to you today and call you Father. It's by the infilling of your Holy Spirit, your work in our lives, the work of Jesus on the cross, and all that means for us, that today we can stand here and not cower in shame and kind of throw up a word into the heavens hoping that it kind of hits the bullseye, but we can embrace you. Come to your throne of grace and find mercy today for our needs, calling you and knowing you as Father. Lord, we are so grateful for your work in our lives. Thank you that you ran to us quickly. Thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for what the cross means for us all, calling us out of life with the pigs and placing us up with the eagles, seating us alongside you in the heavenly places that now and for all eternity, we might know you and be known by you and adore you and love you. And that's what we do in a moment as we sing our songs to you. Father, to King Jesus, to the power of God, to the Holy Spirit, we're saying we adore you and we're thankful. Lord, I pray that where any of what I've said today needs to land afresh in, in our hearts, Holy Spirit, would you help? Would you come and bring that landing place, help the gospel to land again in fertile soil in our hearts, help it to root down and to flourish and to grow into something beautiful. You promised Jesus that the kingdom would be like a small mustard seed that grows into a huge mustard bush that fills up the skies and the birds come and rest in it. Do that in our hearts today, I pray. Amen.